one thing that I would like to uh, address with you is the idea of the, the King James Version. How many of you have had someone say, it's just another version? How many of you have ever heard somebody say that? The only problem is it wasn't, it wasn't called the King James Version until 1929. Translated, introduced to the public in 1611, and it wasn't called the King James Version until 1929. So it lasted 300 and what would that be? 318 years? What was it called for those 318 years? The Bible, the Holy Bible. That's what it was called. That, and so that's why when the, when the revised version was introduced, New Testament 1881, Old Testament 1885, and then the American Standard Version was introduced in 1901, by the 1920s they were both bankrupt. Nobody wanted them. They weren't interested. Because if you walk into a, a, a Christian bookstore or a bookstore of any kind and you have a choice between the Holy Bible and a revised version, what are you going to take? The Holy Bible. And so the translators and the, the publishers came up with the, this idea of calling it the uh, King James Version as if it is just another version, which, of course, we know it's not. And we know that it's not because every other version has to compare itself to the King James Bible when it's introduced. It's very interesting the way that they do that. Uh, I think of uh, the car commercials, you know, where they always compare their cars to the Hondas. How many of you have noticed that? You know, right? It's uh, all you Honda employees. You, you, you understand that. And we know that uh, Honda was in the Bible because they were all in one accord. Amen? Isn't that right? <laughs> all right. So we are a very scriptural church, even to, down to where we work. All right, so now what I want to look at this morning is I want to talk to you about the New King James Bible. This is a parallel Bible, and so this has the New King James as well as uh, the King James, the New International Version, and the New Living Testament, the New Living Translation. And one of the things about this that's so interesting is it has the preface or the introduction to each of the Bibles. And uh, so here is the introduction to the New King James. That's primarily what we're looking at this morning is the New King James. Uh, how many of you have ever had a question? Someone has asked you a question about the New King James Version. So we're going to deal with that this morning. In the preface to the 1611, this is the purpose of the New King James. In the preface of the 1611, or in the preface to the 1611 edition, the translators of the authorized version, known popularly as the King James Bible, state that it was not their purpose to make a new translation, but to make a good one better. Now, what they've done is they, they, they have ellipsis-sized a passage. Is that a word? Ellipsis-sized? They have used ellipsis to uh, separate two statements. And what the King James translator said was that we have stood on the shoulders of giants, and we're going to talk about that next week. How, where, the history of our King James Bible, where did it come from? So what they're doing today is... Um, what they're doing in, in the New King James is they are calling it the, the, the fifth revision of the King James Bible. The Bible was re revised um, four times up to between 1611 and, 16, and 1769. And this morning what I did, I have hanging on my wall uh, a leaf, an actual page from a 1613 King James Bible from Isaiah chapter 26. Uh, the verse that I've chosen for our church, and I don't say this enough, we need to put it on a wall somewhere, is Isaiah 26, 8. Why don't we look at it? Look at Isaiah 26, 8. 
This is the verse that I've chosen. Uh, oh, to set the, the attitude of our church. Look what the Bible says. Yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, have we waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. Isn't that a great verse? I think that's a good statement. We've waited for the Lord and his word, and our desire is to remember him, to honor him, to remember him. So uh, I, this morning, I took my Bible, and I walked over to that page. And so I would read a few words, and then I'd read it in mine. And you want to know something amazing? It said the same thing. And that's 1613. What was difficult was the form of punctuation. The form of punctuation hadn't been settled. Um, and the form of the letters. S's look like F's and things like that. And we're going to explain some of that next week. So the kind of revisions that were made in those first three revisions were on spelling and punctuation and, and uh, things like that. And so now the new King James is claiming to be a fifth revision. Since 1769 was the fourth. And what we hold in our hands would be that last revision of the King James Bible. And so what they're saying is that their change was going to be the fifth revision. But they changed 100, they made 100,000 changes. 80 per page. How many of you that surprises you? When you think about what the new King James has purported itself to be, how many of you that surprises you? Yeah, and one thing that is interesting is how many times those changes would match the same changes that were made in the New International Version or any of the other modern translations. The claim is made that the New King James was translated from the same text as the King James Bible. But the problem with that position is that it was not translated in the same way that the King James Bible was translated. Yes, they did use some of the same underlying text, but the methods of translation that they used were not the methods of translation that the King James translators used. Let's get some ideas from this. Let me show you a couple of things. Matthew, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and I'll just do it here. Matthew chapter 7. We don't have slides this morning. Matthew chapter 7, and look at verse 14. Look at verse 13 for the context. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now, can I ask you a question? How many of you understand that passage clearly? Isn't that right? How many of you have ever been trying to drive something through a gate and the gate was too narrow for your vehicles. Ever happened to you? Any of you that's ever happened? How many of you ever tried to walk through a gate and it was too narrow? No, we won't go there this morning. <laughs> um, now look at what the new, listen to what the new King James says. And, and you just read along in your King James Bible as I read this. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, is salvation difficult? So what happened? 
Now, how many of you remember that we showed you this exact same change last week in the modern translations? You see, what they're trying to do is they're trying to... I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that based on modern writing techniques, you're not supposed to repeat words in the same context. So they change narrow to difficult. But how many of you understand that narrow and difficult are two different things? It's not saying the same thing. That's the first one. Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 3. You know, something that I have not dealt with in this study, that a, a question that someone might have, is this. Well, Pastor, you're comparing these translations to the King James Bible. What, but isn't the issue, what does the Greek say? And how many of you, you've had that thought? Do you know what the Greek says? What's in your King James Bible? Always, every time. You can check it out. Um, I, I don't. I, I don't have time to teach you all Greek to be able to do that. Um, but it, it is interesting. When I studied Greek and I translated, I'm trying to remember the books. I believe I translated the book of Luke and First John and um, Galatians or Philippians. Uh, they, in the New Testament, they wanted us to translate one of the Gospels, one of the Pauline epistles and then uh, one of the general epistles. And so we translated those uh, word for word from Greek to English. And do you know what I found? That I could have just read the King James Bible because I learned nothing more about the text by going to the Greek. So in the, I, I have checked behind some of these verses just a spattering uh, to see what would happen. And every time... The, the word is in, the, the, the reading of your King James Bible is what is in the underlying language, okay? So uh, I, I wanted to address that. So now look with me at John 1, 3. John 1, 3. Uh, I guess verse 1 for the context. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now you all agree with that verse? Is that a clear statement of doctrine? All right. Here's the New King James, and just read along with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Now, how many of you understand there's, there's a difference between something being done by Christ and through Christ? You see, everything that we do in the Christian life, we do through Christ. Amen? How many of you have ever given someone eternal life? But how many of you have ever led someone to the Lord? How many of you see the difference? You see, the world was made by Him, not through Him. The Bible says He is the beginning of the creation of God. That means He began it. He's the object of that statement. He began the creation. That's Revelation 3.14. So th this is a definitely... In error. Um, look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16. And this morning, what we're doing is we're simply looking at the New King James translation, comparing it to the authorized version to see which 
is stronger truth. All right. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16. Um, and remember what they've said is all they did was update the language. Now, this is what we hear. If you go into a bookstore, all they did was update the language. They've taken out some archaic words. They've removed the these and the thous. How many of that's basically what you understand about the New King James? Uh, have we already defeated that idea? How many of you would say we've already defeated that idea? Okay. Now, here's the deal. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not mad at anything. I'm just, we're just clinically examining the text since I'm so good at clinical stuff. Um, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16. For verily, uh, you know what we need to, just for the context, look at verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had power, that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Isn't that a, that's a poignant statement, isn't it? Deliver people who through all their lives were subject to bondage through fear of death. Okay? Now, look at the next verse. For verily, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. All right? He took on him the seed of Abraham. I'll read to you now the same passage in the New King James. Uh, we'll start reading in verse 14 again. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And the, again, this is a text where I checked the Greek on it, the underlying Greek. And it says exactly what your King James Bible says. He took on him. He carried, he took on him the seed of Abraham. That's, that's what he did. And so um, you can see here that this is, how many of you would say that's a, that's a significant point that's been changed? All right. Now look at Hebrews chapter 3. In verse 16. Hebrews three sixteen. For some... When they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of G Egypt by Moses. Uh, I'm sorry. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. Okay. So not everyone provoked. Now look at, I'll read to you the New King James. For who having heard rebelled? Indeed, it was not all who came out. Indeed, it was not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? So what, what this text is saying, and forgive me for my poor reading of this, um, what this is saying is that everyone who came out of Egypt rebelled. That's what it says in the New King James, which is not what it says in the Bible. Not everybody rebelled, but that is what it says in the New King James. All right? Um, then, look at Revelation 19.8. Revelation 
Revelation 19.8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So when you look at the scriptures, when you see clothed in white linen, that's what the church, that's what believers, those who have been saved, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, that's what they get in heaven. All right? It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. So look at that verse 8 again. To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. There is the righteousness of saints. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. I'm going to read it in the New King James now. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And if you have any righteous acts, look at Acts 17.22. Acts 17.22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Now, how many of you agree that based on what you've read in the scriptures that the men of Athens were too superstitious? All these different gods, all these, you know, uh, step on a crack, break your mother's back, Okay. Too superstitious. Don't walk under a ladder. Don't break a mirror. They're too superstitious. Um, and understand that superstition is characterizing uh, satanic religion in the English language. How, how many of you get that? That, that? That's just a clear understanding of the English language. Let me read to you what the New King James says. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Is that a different understanding of the text? Yeah. Yeah, different understanding of the text. Text. One of the areas that I think is very disturbing is every place where in the New Testament where the word hell is used the, in the English, the New King James translates it or doesn't translate it. It simply transliterates the Greek words. Uh, so let me give you an example. Go with me to Luke chapter 16. It's always difficult when you do a study like this. You understand that we could spend a year at least on the subject of translation and inspiration and preservation. So trying to determine what are we going to, to hit, it, it can become difficult. Um, look with me at... Uh, Luke chapter 16. And do you remember what's going on here? You have the rich man and Lazarus. And we'll start reading in verse 22, Luke 16, 22. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. All right. Let me read to you what it says in... Uh, the New King James, starting with verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, Hades is the place of the dead. Hades is the grave. 
How many of you understand that the context would require this to be a different word than that? It, it requires an explanation. The translation, uh, and I, I may talk about this next week, there are different types of translation. There is a literal wooden translation, which if, if you had a, a wooden literal translation where you just word for word translate, you couldn't understand it, okay? A complete thought, a complete translation is where you express in the other language what was intended by the original language. That's the way the King James Bible is translated, all right? Then you have a dynamic equivalent. You have a complete equivalent. That's what the King James is. A dynamic equivalent is a thought for thought where you don't, the desire is not to translate the words, but to translate the thoughts. All right? So what you have here is someone trying to remove the word hell. They don't like the word hell in the English. And so what they do is they fail to translate. They choose not to translate the Greek word Hades. And this happens every place in the New King James. Let me give you, um, we're not going to look up all of the verses, but let me list them for you. Matthew 5.22, hellfire is called Gehenna. Matthew 5.29, hell, Gehenna. Matthew 5.20, Gehenna. Uh, Matthew 10:28 Gehenna, Matthew 11:23 Hades, Matthew 16:18 Hades, Matthew 18:19 Hellfire. Now uh, I could go on. There's about 20 more, um, but you understand that you know when you're at the mechanics shop uh, or you're you're talking with someone who gets mad at you, they tell you to go to Gehenna, right? Because that's the common language of the people. Do you know when hell was the common do you know when hell became to be the common English term for the place of eternal torment and judgment? In the 1200s. It has been that way since the 1200s. Now, how many of you understand that there is a, a clear distinction in Scripture between the grave and the place of eternal torment? The Bible doesn't say that death and the grave will be cast into the lake of fire. The Bible says that death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. And when you remove that distinction, you remove a clear understanding of what's going on. Now, let me ask you something. If you handed someone a New King James Bible and just had them read it, common person, average person, and they're seeing Gehenna, they're seeing Hades, are they going to understand what the Bible's talking about? But when they see the word hell, they know what that's talking about. See, one of the things that we run into is one of the problems that we have is there is um, there's a reticence in modern evangelical Christianity to identify hell as having fire. Uh, Laura and I and the kids, we were driving to um, Florida for vacation this summer. And, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was similar to going to Gehenna. Um, but while we were driving there, while we were driving there, we were flipping through the radio and a uh, popular radio teacher, James McDonald, was coming on. And my sister, Debbie, 
loves James McDonald's teaching, and she keeps asking me if I've heard him, and I haven't. So I, I thought, well, let's listen. This is the first time I've had a chance to hear him. Let's listen to James McDonald. And he was preaching on this text, the Luke 16. And he said, now you ask me, is this literal fire? I just don't know. I'm not sure. Okay, he said, send Lazarus to, to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. What, what is that? That's fire. Um, let me read to you a couple of places. Um, the Jehovah's Witness, for example, who deny that hell is a place of eternal fiery punishment, prefer the term Hades. So do the Seventh-day Adventists. In fact, many evangelicals are also denying or questioning the doctrine of hell. In 1993, Billy Graham said, when it comes to a literal fire, I don't preach it because I'm not sure about it. When the scripture uses fire concerning hell, that is possibly an illustration of how terrible it's going to be. Not fire, but something worse, a thirst for God that cannot be quenched. Um, because you understand that the, that the common man today is parched by a thirst for God. No. No. Robert Schuller, he said uh, that, oh, and by the way, that, that was in Time Magazine, November 15th, 1993. Robert Schuller says, what, or quote, and what is hell? It is the loss of pride that naturally follows separation from God, the ultimate and unfailing source of our soul's sense of self-respect. So hell is separation from God, and the reason it's hell is because it's a removal from our source of self-respect. How many of you think that's not what the Bible teaches? Right? It, what's interesting to me is the Bible is so unbelievably clear on this, and yet people are very uncomfortable. Whether it's John Stott, famous Bible teacher, Billy Graham, others, they all struggle with that. Um, now, let's, let's move on from there. I, I want to deal with the change, and I have page and page and page and page of changes that we could go through. But have we seen enough changes? Honestly, have we seen enough? All right. And, and maybe not. If, if it's not enough, then... I'm happy to uh, spend some more time uh, personally on that. Um, I want to talk to you about the purpose of the New King James. Uh, Kirk DeVitro sat in on a meeting with the publishers of the New King James, and this is his testimony. Over 20 years ago, quote, over 20 years ago I attended a pre-publication meeting of the New King James version held by the Thomas Nelson people. Thomas Nelson publishers are who published the New King James. Uh, and hosted by the Hackman's Bible Bookstore in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Um, during the presentation, I'm, I'm skipping down a little bit. During the presentation the New King of the New King James Version, the Thomas Nelson representative made a statement, which to the best of my memory was, quote, We are all well-educated people here. We would never say this to our people, but we all know that the King James Version is a poor translation based on poor texts. But every attempt to give your people a better Bible has failed. They just won't accept them. So we have gone back and done a revision of the King James Version, a fifth revision. Hopefully it will serve as a transitional bridge to eventually get your people to accept a more accurate Bible. That was the intent of the publishers of the New King James. The other thing, how many of you have heard that it was 
translated from the same text as the King James Bible. Okay? But what they do is in the footnote, in the footnotes, all through the New King James Bible, they compare it to the, the updated nestles along updated text. Um, so what they're doing is undermining the text of the King James Bible in the footnotes. The Nestles Aland United Bible Society's critical Greek text, NU, follows the Westcott and Hort text of 1881. Now, I have just a couple of minutes to explain to you this, the Westcott and Hort versus the text that underlies the King, underlies the King James Bible. Westcott and Hort were um, scholars in the middle of the 1800s. They did not believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. They rejected that concept. And because of the influence of German higher criticism, and German higher criticism was where you had people who did not believe in the Bible. They did not believe the, the words of scripture. What they wanted to do was they, they believed that through human reason that they could examine the existing manuscripts and versions and determine based on science which words belonged in the text and which words didn't. So Westcott and Hort were the fathers of that. And if you come back tonight in the evening service, I'm going to give you history of, of Westcott and Hort and the men behind the lexicons and dictionaries that are given in the, in the Bible college seminaries and bookstores. I'm going to do that this evening. So what Westcott and Hort did was they developed their own text. It was called a critical text. Well, that critical text has now been updated, I think, 30 or 40 times. All right? And that is what we end up with in this Nestles Aland um, United Bible Society text. And so that's the NU text. So now, this is what is in the margin of the New King James Version, Thomas Nelson, copyright 1984. Forty-four entire verses are questioned in the margin of the New King James on the basis of the unreliable United Bible Society's text. Forty-four entire verses. Portions of 95 other version, versions, or I'm sorry, Portions of 95 other verses are questioned in the margin of the New King James on the basis of the United Bible Society's text. And what they do is they have a footnote, uh, Matthew 5.22, and you omits without a cause. So go with me to Matthew 5.22. We looked at this last week, but uh, we'll just use this as, as a test case. Matthew 5.22. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. All right? So, if someone is angry without a cause, they're in danger of judgment. That's what the Bible says. Is that right? Angry without a cause. Well, um, I don't think that... Yeah, here we are in the New King James. But I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause. There's a footnote there. And you look down to uh, the footnote and it says, NU text and M text omit those of... Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, the NU text omits without a cause. So now here's the problem. If you take without a cause out of that verse, then Jesus becomes a sinner. Because the Bible says that Jesus was angry. But did Jesus have a cause to be angry? The Bible says, be angry and sin not. Jesus Christ could be angry and still not sin. He was our sinless Savior. So if you remove without a cause, it makes Jesus Christ a sinner. 
Those, those statements are so vitally important to doctrine. Um, but I, I had meant to say this all the way at the beginning of the study when we introduced this. None of this is important if you're not going to study the words. This is only important if the words of Scripture and comparing the words of Scripture and understanding the truth of God by comparing the words of Scripture are important. If that's important, then without a cause is very important. That gives you an example of what is done. And I have, um, uh, let me show you, this at the bottom of the page where I have my red marks, that begins the changes. And uh, there, there's another, there's another, there's another, there's another. These are all omissions in the footnote where the, the Nestles Aland United Bible Society text does not have these verses or these phrases in their text. So in the footnotes to the King James Bible, they make sure that you know that scholarship doesn't agree with that. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Because the translators of the New King James uh, were not sure about the meaning of it. They were not sure, I'm sorry, not, they were not uh, adherents to the text that underlies the King James Bible. Um, I thought I had it here, but the head of the translation committee for the New King James in a personal letter to David Cloud, and I've gotten some of this information from David Cloud, he said that um, he is not a TR man. He says, I do not accept the TR text. I, I would hold to the Nestles Aland United Bible Society's text, which is why he had to put that in the footnotes. So now let me ask you a question. Was it then really translated from the same text as your King James Bible? No. No. Um, now let me say this. It's by far more accurate than the NIV or the New American Standard Bible or the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible. But do you know these changes that I've pointed out to you? They all match the Jehovah's Witness New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. How many of you find that interesting? Um, I was just in Logan. I saw this this whole group came in. I was I was um, I, I needed to go to a quiet and holy place to study, so I went to Starbucks, and uh, I saw this group come in, and they were all dressed up. And so I asked one of the people. I said, "What are you all dressed up for?" He said, "Well, we're, well, we're here. We're here to do ministry." I said, "Really? Who are you with?" Well, we're Jehovah's Witnesses, and so about ten of them had come to hit Logan. And at every home they went to, they, under, they would undermine people's belief in Jesus Christ as very God, co-eternal, co-existent with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. They undermine that every, every home they go to. And they have translated a New Testament that, that upholds their position. But what you are never told is that the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures that Jehovah's Witness use is translated from the same text as the modern translations. And almost every error of the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures is found in the New International Version. It's found in the New American Standard Bible, in the English Standard Version, the New ESV. Um, all of those errors are there. Uh, on, on a Sunday night, I will do that. I'll take the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures and show you. How many of you that would be interesting to see that? And so you see why there's so much confusion in the world. Is God the author of confusion? No. The Bible says that God is not the author of confusion. 
The last thing that I want to talk about are the ye's, the these, the thou's. All right? The, thou, thine. Those are always singular. Always singular. You, your, um, and ye are always plural. So when you read your in, in your English King James Bible, uh, ye must be born again, or you must be born again. That's plural. That's plural. But when it says thee, thine, thy, that's an individual. That's an individual. Now, the Bible says, uh, Jesus Christ is speaking, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired you to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee. He's speaking to all the disciples. Satan wanted to deceive, wanted to deceive and to sift all of the disciples as wheat. But he had prayed specifically for Peter. Why? Why would Jesus Christ in that setting pray specifically for Peter? Because he was going to deny him. He was going to shake his faith. If you have a New King James Version of the Bible, that teaching is gone. Um, so what we have to understand is, how many of you have heard that the these and the thous and the thines and the yees were, are, are because the Bible was translated into Elizabethan English? How many of you have heard something like that? It's just not true. Shakespeare, writing in the 1500s, would use the, the pronouns very much like you and I would use it in conversation. Um, I, I just listened to a, a lesson by James Knox where he went through a bunch of Shakespeare and identified how Shakespeare was using the pronouns in the same way that we would use it in modern language. You see, the Bible is not... Those, those, those pronouns, the use of pronouns the way that your King James Bible does, is not Elizabethan language. It's biblical language. Because the English does not match the, the underlying Greek that was used because the Greek is very specific in tense. It's very specific in singular or plural, whether it's speaking to a group or to individuals. It's very specific. That is lost in the New King James Bible. There's another thing that I don't have time to get into. What they have done is, because they've removed some of those things, what they've done is they've capitalized pronouns that refer to God. They capitalize any pronoun. So if it's talking about he said, speaking about God, it would cap they would capitalize the he. The problem is that all through the Bible, because the translators did not understand what the text was speaking of, they didn't understand how to interpret the text, especially in the prophets. In Isaiah, there are many passages that are dealing with the Messiah where the pronoun is not capitalized. So if you're relying on that interpretive tool they've provided for you in the New King James, you actually lose the teaching of the Bible. So these things, and you might be thinking, if this is your first session with us on this subject, you might be thinking, well, big deal. Again, it only matters if you're going to study the words. It's only important if you're going to study the words. If all you're interested is in the thoughts and the precepts, then it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. But imagine this. Your wife sends you to the store. I want you to get, um, go to the store, get me Jiffy peanut butter. And then I want you to be sure and get Tide laundry detergent. And then I want you to get Pillsbury Poppin' Fresh rolls. And you come home with all the generic brands or something else. And your wife said, why didn't you get the things that I asked you to get? You said, well, 
I got what you meant. Let's do it even more specific. James Knox did it this way. Um, okay, Patrick, I want to meet you next Tuesday for lunch. And uh, so I'd like to meet at 3. And then what we're going to do is we'll meet at 4 and 6 and 7. So I'll meet you next Tuesday, okay? How many of you would say that's a confusing message? We're meeting for lunch. But the details are gone. So the truth of meeting for lunch is there, but the actual detail of when is gone. That's what you lose in the modern translations of the Bible. Um, one of the things that, that I hope to get to, we've talked about it before, is the consistency of the translation, day of the Lord, um, a woman in travail, uh, the third day, um, all of those issues where they're consistently used in the Bible, those words and phrases are consistently used to teach doctrine. Modern translations remove all that. There's no way that you can understand the Bible doctrinally from modern translation of the Bible based on the words and phrases. It's just completely removed. Um, we, did, did I show you last week how the rapture is removed from the modern Bibles? I didn't do that. I need to show you. I have an, the ESV. The ESV is called by John Piper, um, the Bible that he's dreamed his whole life for. John Piper, is, of course, is the, um, the number one missionary for the Calvinists in America. And so this is a Calvinist translation of the Bible, and the rapture is removed. Place after place after place, the rapture is removed. How many of you are glad Jesus Christ is coming back before you take you out of this mess? All right, well, that's, that's removed. I watched a debate yesterday. Um, I didn't have time to watch it. Andrea sent me a link to this debate and ruined my whole day. Um, it's her fault. I'm never going to forgive her. But uh, I watched this debate, and it was between Albert Moeller, who's a, who is a sound evangelical. I mean, he's a brilliant man. He loves the Lord, um, but he doesn't know how to interpret the Bible. So he was debating um, Jim Wallace, the founder of Sojourners. It's a completely liberal, socialistic ministry. Um, Jim Wallace just spoke at Cedarville. As a matter of fact, he referenced the Cedarville meeting right at, uh, on, on this debate. And what he believes, what this Jim Wallace believes, is that you have to add um, what Jesus Christ did to the gospel. So where Jesus Christ said... Uh, that he has been sent to proclaim liberty to the captives, that he's come to proclaim liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, uh, all those, that passage where he's quoting Isaiah 61.1. He said to uh, well, Wallace, said, well, that's the gospel. Why would you remove the first thing that Jesus said he came to do from the gospel? So proclaiming the gospel is proclaiming people, that, telling them that they can be free from slavery, that they can be healed, that they can... That, that's the gospel. How many of you would understand that that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ? Right? It's not. Well, when Moeller was trying to answer the question, he said, well, we are supposed to do those things, but that's not the apostolic formation of the gospel. Do you know what the answer was to Jim Wallace? When Wallace said, aren't we supposed to do these things? Do you know what the answer is? Yes. If we're the Messiah, Jesus was the Messiah. He was identifying by that text. He said, this day is that scripture fulfilled in your ears. But again, it only matters if you're going to believe the words. You see, they kept talking about the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. And they were both saying, we are preaching the gospel of the kingdom. What, what Moeller said was, we have, to, we have to lead people to Christ so that they can become the kind of people that will bring in the kingdom. 
Whose job is it to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth? Whose job is it to establish that? Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to come and do that. The Bible couldn't be any more clear on that. But because these men don't understand those key words and phrases of the Bible, they could not give clear answers. And let me, let me preface this by saying Moeller did a good job of defending the gospel. He did a good job of defending the, the historic death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for salvation. I, I, don't, I don't want anyone to misinterpret what I'm saying. Moeller and Wallace clearly disagreed on salvation by faith. Okay? You, you have that? But in understanding what the Messiah came to do, they agreed. And so that's where these kinds of things become so important. Words mean things. And the consistency of translation that God has given us in the King James Bible is far superior to any set of commentaries. It's far superior to any modern translation. And you can trust it. You can trust it. All right. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word.